Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, what is going on at The Telegraph? After resignations, accusations and a full-blooded attack on other papers, we discuss the fallout and some hope for the paper... The beleaguered Radio Academy bounces back with a new strategy and a new chair. Radio 1 Chief Ben Cooper takes us through what members can expect to change in the next 12 months. Plus, good news for journalists, more on The Guardian's search for a new editor-in-chief and why overnight ratings might be a thing of the past for the BBC. This is the Media Podcast, sponsored by Audioboom. And with me today is James Robinson of Powers Court PR and formerly The Observer's media editor. I have to ask you the uh, media question of the week. What are you watching, Indian Summers or The Casual Vacancy? I'm watching neither, actually. What? I'm sorry. What? I, 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 I find both them? stiflingly middle class and uh, not that I'm not middle class, but so I, I'm boycotting both. I know that's miserable, but I, I'm just... I've done Broadchurch and that's it, which is rubbish. Viva Revolution. <laughs> Something like that. And making his media podcast debut, it is the group digital director for the newspaper group Local World, uh, Matt Kelly. Hi there, Matt. Hello, how are you? Very good, thank you. Do you find the casual vacancy overwhelmingly middle class? I haven't watched a minute of it. I'm a wolf hall man, I'm afraid. Oh, well, now that's, pro- that's upper middle class. <laughs> Positively Tudor. <laughs> uh, now, listeners will recognise you from the bonus episode we had a few weeks back when you were talking uh, about the uh, press we deserve. Yeah. Uh, what sort of response have you had? from that? Uh, yeah, really positive actually. It was um, surprisingly enough there were several people who heard it first time round were kind enough to listen to it again on audio on your uh, podcast and were very generous about it and uh, I suspect I came over as a bit of an old print dinosaur which of course I'm, I'm not. I've just got a sort of strong emotional attachment to, to print so I'm very much a digital guy these days. Okay. Well we'll be much. the judge of that. We're talking about The Guardian <laughs> later so that'll be the test won't exactly. it? Exactly. Uh, now I must say before we continue with any proper business that apparently you've had a Twitter spat in the past you two. Yeah. Would you like to just sort of air that again ago. now? Neither of us can remember what it was uh, but it I ended up know. very It was it escalated very quickly. Yeah. I don't um, think it was either of our finest hours. Was no, it? I think we. It must have been a, like one of those late night ones where you've had a few beers or Definitely. something. Definitely. And um, I, I did just say, if I'd have known how big James was, I would never have kicked it off in the first place. <laughs> I don't think I'd ever take on a scouser, to be honest. Well, we'd um, just hit you on the back of the head uh, with an ashtray or something, really. <laughs> so it's a very male, very, very sort of male, macho podcast this week, isn't yeah. it? It is, actually. Yeah. yeah. But mm. I quite like that we're embracing that. We're already to- having fighting talk <laughs> so, so soon into the show. Uh, right, well, we start this week with the Telegraph's very bizarre week at the centre of a news storm. Uh, this started, of course, with Peter Oborn's resignation and a blistering attack on his old employee. 
employers. He said that whilst most other papers had given wide coverage to the HSBC banking scandal, The Telegraph had just five paragraphs in the business section. Now, he said this was the case with Tesco and also some critical stories about Hong Kong as well, uh, both Tesco and HSBC being major advertisers with The Telegraph, and there's also that occasional paid-for supplement called China Watch. Uh, Now, before we get stuck into all this, we should, of course, point out The Telegraph repeatedly deny uh, Oborn's allegations, uh, and Ipsos as well, the press regulator, are looking to see if there's been any misconduct. Uh, I suppose as well I should declare that I also write for The Telegraph on a freelance basis, but it would be highly ironic if I was to allow that to get in the way of discussing this issue. Uh, so <laughs> let's get going. Uh, Matt, the Media Standards Trust are looking into this, looking into what Peter Oborn said, trying to find some evidence as to whether The Telegraph have been underreporting HSBC. What have they found? Well, well, they found that The Telegraph did write substantially fewer stories on this matter than, than the competition. But uh, I guess... Your question says under-reporting, and I think in that you've got to analyse the context of the Telegraph's audience and what they consider to be the news agenda. And I do feel that newspapers aren't under an obligation to cover every single story that comes across their path. You know, newspapers in Britain are partisan, can pick and choose what their agenda is. And there is a reality, and it's a fact, that all newspapers in the UK have some uh, commercial imperative... Uh, even The Guardian has a commercial imperative, and we're all influenced by that imperative from time to time. So I guess what we're talking about is a question of degree here. You know, did The Telegraph go too far in, in undermining their editorial integrity by writing so few HSBC stories? I think it's interesting when you go back to Peter Oborn's his big agenda-setting piece about why he had to quit mm. and try and unpick it, and it... If you read it again and again, it seems less about HSBC and more about the what he sees as the change in the Telegraph, a paper that, as he says, you know, his church warden grandfather read and he holds very dear to his heart. There was a lot of angst in that piece that was more about the changing shape of the Telegraph than it was about HSBC. But, but even if uh, all of those things are a given... On this case, they must have got it wrong. I mean, if he says, look at the comparative, competitive newspapers, The Guardian, The Times, The Independent, all of them covering more stories on this one issue, front page yeah. splash everywhere else. Yeah. You'd expect more well, than they gave. Well, I mean, I d- I've no idea whether there was any sort of influence about HSBC. There's been loads of speculation about why that might be, about the Barclay Brothers loan going through, about just not wanting to upset them as an advertiser. I've no idea, but if there was some influence, I would say it's certainly far from unique and far from unusual. In fact, I would say it was the norm that there was a commercial influence in, in editorial policy. So whether they got it wrong or not, I don't know. They, you know the other thing about Oborn's uh, piece is it sort of takes the Telegraph readers for mugs if he thinks that the Telegraph readers aren't exposed to any other forms of media, aren't aware of... The HSBC story in in other uh, news outlets. So, I just think you know people subscribe to a newspaper for a particular set of values. In this case, the Telegraph have clearly acted in a in a way that is untypical compared to their competitive set. Why that is, I don't know, but it's not an unusual thing to happen. And James, the other thing I guess that I, I think a lot of readers are aware of 
And I think this is why this story has resonated sort of beyond the media village. You know, it's not as if Peter Oborn is exactly a household name, is it? But this story has resonated because I think people, normal readers, recognise that in this new digital world, they've seen it in places like BuzzFeed very flagrantly. Mm. There is this conflation of advertorial uh, and, you know, editorial. Um, and that's why this story resonates. People suspect this is going on behind the scenes at every paper. Yeah, I guess that's true, that the, the great sort of divide, you know, church and state, the big divide between editorial and advertising, they feel, might be... Uh, collapsing um, due to the economics of the newspaper industry, maybe they have picked up on that. One reason why they may not have covered it as extensively as their rivals is that you know it's another paper scoop, isn't it? I mean, there's always a reluctance from rival newspapers to to, to give a lot of coverage to the in this case the Guardian's scoop. Um, yeah, although it was a big BBC documentary too, and I know they don't like the BBC. Well, but, same you know. applies, you know, arguably. But but I mean, even so, I mean, it's, it may be a factor. I mean, I don't sound naive. I mean, there is that you know. I don't think there is much doubt that there wasn't a, uh, a commercial uh, uh, imperative as well in, in their decision to downplay the story. But, but it's always been there, as you know, Matt says. It, you can, it's easy to be nostalgic about this supposed you know, golden age when advertising and editorial were completely separate. That's not really that. That's never been the case. I mean, there's a famous story of, uh, about Sir Stanley Carms when he ran Dixon's going into the Sun newsroom and being shown round as a big advertiser saying, oh, it's nice to see the paper I, I pay for. Mm. You know, and you wouldn't see the negative articles about Dixon's in the Sun, for example. There's an element of self-censorship and it's always front of mind, the, the, the people that bankroll these titles. Wouldn't you say, Matt? And, and, and nor would you, I imagine, find a ton of proactive investigation against Unilever at The Guardian, where they've just taken a million quid for a native advertising <laughs> unit to be yeah. developed. So, I mean, I'm not saying for a minute that The Guardian would downplay any bad Unilever story they came across but I don't suppose their features desk thought I know what we'll do now we'll go out and root out the dirt on Unilever now Mm. you know I think there is a sort of hypocrisy and it's it's magnified by the Guardian's more polarized position in in the media landscape now and the Guardian has become a more polarized uh, platform which is probably brilliant for them exactly what they want to happen but it does mean that whenever they kick back against uh, a competitor the competitor feels the urge to kick back even harder and I think that emotional response mm. may explain something that I do think went over the line of the Telegraph which was the story about the two News UK ad guys who according to the Telegraph committed suicide and to use two people who've, who've killed themselves at least according to that report as collateral in some Fleet Street dogfight was well, I'd never sort of tasted anything quite like that before, and I've witnessed plenty of Fleet Street dogfights. You know, it, it, it did feel, it was quite shocking, and I'm sure that was felt throughout the Telegraph and, and more broadly. Well, indeed, I mean, it noticeable, wasn't it, the byline was Daily Telegraph reporter, and yeah, yeah. it was on the front page. Yeah. Uh, you know, it wasn't on the media section. Do you think there was a sense there that they've, they've actually overplayed their hand? That was a mistake. I don't think anyone could disagree that that was a massive misjudgment, no, no matter what the rights and wrongs of the, the HSBC coverage and the debate surrounding it. It's clearly, you know, fairly, I mean, it's incredibly bad taste and shocking to use that. And the fact they didn't have a barn on it. I mean, who would want to see their barn on such a story? I mean, um, I, I think we're, we're all agreed on that. It's extremely unfortunate. This is a case... Oborn claims of naked self-interest commercially, but then there's a huge amount of self-censorship, or, or so, right, some self-censorship on most titles. So they know what to write about and what not to write about, and we have to acknowledge that. It does go on time and time again. It goes on all the time in different levels. It's happening more and more, obviously, as the internet is blurring 
the line between editorial and commerce and how as businesses can we ask our journalists to think more like entrepreneurial commercial animals you know and to have a be mindful of the commerce and the monetization of digital and then on the other hand expect them to be totally pristine in their editorial integrity well, it this, doesn't make sense this is it isn't it are young journalists who go off to train nowadays actually being sold a bit of a lie about the profession they're going into because i imagine they're still being told about all the ethical and moral decisions they should be making to expose what's going on in big business but as you say it's actually just a given that when you get into almost any commercial media organization there's going to be those pressures you have to ignore well, well, yeah, everything you've been taught uh, well, well let's not get too carried away i mean you know we in danger of sounding like two very cynical old hacks here, or former hacks in my case. Um, I mean, I mean there, you know, there clearly is a principle at stake here, which is an important one. Um, it's just, it, the reality means it's harder to uphold in, in the current economic climate and the, you know, the cyclical decline of print that we're witnessing. I mean, you know, we'd all love to be in the position of an Andrew Neil who told, you know, Al Fayed when he threatened to withdraw his Harrods advertising that he was from this moment banning him from ever advertising the Sunday Times again but that you know the newspaper that was a unique period actually uh, in newspapers history that they had a monopoly on news or the written news which will never which has gone forever so you know it's there is that you have to have a sense of realism I think okay more stories after this This edition of the Media Podcast is brought to you by Squarespace 7. Squarespace 7 still builds websites and still does it using drag-and-drop tools, but now it comes with new HTML5 designs to make a very modern website for your business or portfolio. For a free trial with no credit card required, go to squarespace.com. Plans start at $8 a month and include a free domain name if you sign up for a year. And of course, you can get 10% off a monthly or annual plan by using the code MEDIAPOD at the checkout. Begin building your website with Squarespace today. And don't forget, you'll receive 10% off when you use the offer code MEDIAPOD. Last month, we mentioned that the Radio Academy had fired almost all of its staff and were planning a new structure. Uh, the Radio Academy, of course, is the members organisation that looks after the, the radio awards or the Sonys as they were once known and the radio festival in Salford and various training events as well. The new structure was needed mostly because of the shortfall in income when Sony dropped its sponsorship, which is what the media podcast puts to Ben Cooper, the Radio Academy's current chair, at the announcement on Tuesday. I think um, that the Radio Academy, which has been going since the 80s, um, is like any other organisation that has been going since the 80s. It needs to continually assess whether it is fit for purpose. And you look at how life has changed since the 80s to compared to now, and you realise that, of course, it is absolutely essential that any organisation needs to constantly uh, consider, is it fit for purpose for the modern age? Does it need to uh, reprioritise? Um, and the Radio Academy needs to look at what it's doing for its members and is it value for money? Are members getting something from being a member of the Radio Academy? And I think that's what we've done today is to say, OK, we've reassessed, we've looked at what the future should be and we've realised that we need to be more relevant to, in people's lives going forward. So, James, what is changing at the Academy? Well, it's going to be funded by its members, which is obviously a big change. It used to be funded by the industry. 
and the, the, I think crucially the, uh, the the price of the festival is coming down. I mean, it's good news for the industry, obviously, because it, it's a marketing as much as anything else. It's a marketing opportunity for radio, isn't it? So, but the festival is also moving to London. You know, and this comes back to all the regionalisation issues, doesn't it? Is it a mistake to hold it in Salford? You know, the whole point with Salford was the big great white hope for the radio industry. Well, as a scouser, I, I believe holding anything in Salford's a mistake. But, <laughs> but, but it's a shame, isn't it? Because, you know, everything's so London-centric. And I think the more London-centric we are, it, it washes through to all of our output. You know, we just think about London. And even if it means a bunch of radio execs don't get up north once a year, then uh, that's a bad thing. Mm. But I suppose it's those dogs' bodies who work in production every day who couldn't afford the ticket to go to Salford and go to the festival who now might be able to go. So it's six of one, half dozen of the other, isn't it? They're also talking about doing a kind of theatre-style awards show mm. um, for what will become the replacement for the Sony Awards, a bit like the BAFTAs, a bit like RTS. Is that going to be better? Something quicker? Doesn't involve an expensive dinner? And Yeah, it sounds like a more for- a modern format, doesn't it? You know, I think the days of... you know dinners, drinks, getting hammered, watching a three-hour show, it's, 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 it's sort of, it's wearing for the audience, it's, you, and you, you feel like you're just on a set. Or they so. can televise it. They should, I think. Be much better than radio. They should right? at least stream it on the internet. <laughs> Slightly in- ironic. So, so long as it doesn't mean that Kasabian have to open every ceremony. It'd be just great be... to see the faces of all these voices, wouldn't it? It yeah, would. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, also, in his speech to members, James, Ben Cooper mentioned Zane Lowe moving to Apple. Um, now, do you think radio needs to acknowledge this competition we're seeing from things like iTunes Radio? Yeah, I mean, the, the landscape's changing rapidly, isn't it? I mean, there's, we've talked before on the show about the, the podcast. The, the podcast as a, as a medium are, are you know, I'm not just saying it because I'm on one, are, are extremely compelling. You know, you can listen to them in your car, you just, just like the radio. I mean, uh, It's a big world ever since uh, Serial invented podcasting. Well, Serial, yeah, it seems that way, yeah. So it wasn't The Guardian, it was Serial, but... Um, so no, I mean, there's going to be a lot more of that, isn't there? It's the same as it, in the rest of the media industry. You've got Kevin Spacey signing a multi-million pound deal to do TV series for Netflix. You've got big presenters leaving BBC and others to to join Apple and the like. So it's, it, it's we're going to see more of it. It's a, quite, it's, a, it's a more competitive world. Now, in case you haven't noticed, there's a general election around the corner. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, I think social media may, you know, have a role to play there as well. But let's talk about the schedule for the TV debates. They have been published. Uh, ITV kicking things off on the 2nd of April, uh, the BBC two weeks later. Uh, both BBC and ITV will feature the three main parties, plus UKIP, the Greens, SNP, Plaid Cymru, then a head-to-head between Cameron and Miliband, screened by Channel 4 and Sky, just days before the election on the 30th of April. Uh, if uh, David Cameron actually comes around to agree to do that, because he said all along... It's a, it's a huge if. I mean, he's not going to do it. He won't agree to do it, I'm sure. You know, so I'm not sure, it's not going to happen. It won't happen in that format, because Cameron screwed up, lost the election uh, in 2010 by doing so badly on the first leaders debate as we all know and uh, and if they empty chair in for that it would just be Jeremy Paxman interrogating <laughs> Ed Miliband for an hour that yeah, would be I, d- uh, I don't think this it's that time of the year your vacation is coming up you can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze relax and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. 
it's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Any percentage for, for Cameron to do this at all? What do you think about the presenters that have been announced for these debates, though, if they do happen? We've got Julie Etchingham on ITV, uh, Paxo uh, and Kay Burley offering assistance on Sky, and the BBC, of course, David Dimbleby. As much as I hate to admit it, the one I'd love to tune into most is the Kay Burley show because I just think she's brilliantly polarising, but you know that makes her quite a compelling watch, and I think she, you know, be in danger of asking some very pertinent questions. Mm. Well, also, of course, being on Sky as well as Channel Four, that's going to be the one that will feel the most like an event. I yeah. dare say that'll be the one that they will milk the hell out of for 24 hours before, won't they? With slick promos and everything else, the big head-to-head. It's good to see two women as well on the list, you know, yeah. because uh, I mean, as much as we all love Dimbleby and Paxo, it's. it's has to, has to be said it's fairly predictable yeah. choices isn't it so yeah. no I think that's great and I, I obviously like most like all voters really I, I hope it does happen but it's hard to see the upside as Matt says on for Cameron in appearing. Uh, meanwhile, another election is taking place. It is for the new editor-in-chief for The Guardian, uh, replacing the incumbent Alan Rusbridger. Uh, the vote is just an indication by its staff as to who they would like to see get the job. The final decision still rests with the Scott Trust, who own Guardian News and Media. But it is incredibly open, isn't it, this hustings procedure? You can see the four candidates pitching why they should be editor on the website of the NUJ. It's a fascinating read for anyone who's into this stuff. Uh, James, who's put themselves forward? Well, the internal candidates who will be taking part in the hustings are Kath Viner, Janine Gibson, Wolfgang Blau and uh, Emily Bell. Well, as I say, internal, she's ex-Guardian, now in, uh, a professor of journalism uh, over in the US. And uh, the, I mean, the, the hustings are taking place on Wednesday afternoon, so um, it'll be fascinating to see who does best um, I mean, I have my own thoughts. I know, I know them. I don't know Wolfgang, but I know the others, and I've worked with the others. Um, it's hard to really give an opinion, actually, because I, I feel. Um, well, I can give an opinion. I think Viner and Bell are my choices, having read what they're going to say at yeah. the hustings, based really? on their sort of strategy for what's moving forward. I know that people like Janine Gibson. Um, but uh, I think uh, those two would probably be my choice, uh, based on what they're saying about the future of digital, um, which does seem to be a really crucial sticking point. N- none of the candidates are saying we need to stick to our guns and produce a daily paper. I just hope that none of them are planning to get rid of subs in the future because they all need a sub having read their 1,000 word <laughs> stories and I was massively disappointed by the lack of real substance in any of those pitches. Actually the most substantial paragraph in it was from Wolfgang Blau who I think is a bit of a dark horse in the race um, besides stating finally for the fact that he's not a woman, which, <laughs> yeah. he, which he did put into rest that uh, long-standing rumour. And also he, a German. And, and he noted yeah. that he was a German. Yeah. But the, the interesting thing he said was this redefinition or perhaps more clarity around the role of the chief executive within Guardian News and Media. And, and Wolfgang is proposing quite clearly to reduce the role of chief exec to something more akin to a managing director. And he uh, is saying very categorically that it is the role of the editor-in-chief 
to control all of product, all of data analysis and the future strategy of the Guardian output of content. Now, to me, that seems like a step down for your traditional chief exec role. It very much puts the editor-in-chief above that, where, of course, the editor-in-chief has been under Alan Rusbridge, but interesting that Wolfgang should want that in writing to say, this is how I see the future. And the second interesting bit of substance was a rather bizarro idea from Emily Bell saying that it should only be a five-year term Mm. and people can be re-elected for another five years. And I was scratching my head about this and then I realised that Emily turns 50 in September, so for her, 10 years is absolutely perfect. But if you're 42 like Janine Gibson, then it might not be quite the ticket. But I thought the lack of substance, plenty of verbiage, plenty of sort of sub-Cromwellian bluster about the future of the, of the Guardian. But a disappointing, you know, I was looking for something to say, do you know what, I'm going to shut down the Guardian Monday to Friday. That's the thing. Let's, let's be done with it. It wasn't there. And my bet is that on the basis of those four things, the ultimate winner may not be on that list. One observation, Wolfgang's idea is very brave because they're looking for a new chief executive at the moment, aren't they? And I'm not sure if anyone will want the job if Wolf, Wolfgang gets the editorship based on his... Uh, his determination to downgrade the position. But, um, as you say, the editor-in-chief is all-powerful anyway. Um, but there's no way that any of those candidates are going to say anything controversial. I mean, you can't say, hi, 500 journalists, we're going to shut down the newspaper no, and then expect to win the vote. Yeah, but they're <laughs> all saying they'd invest in journalism, just not the paper. And they, mm. they all did make the point that we shouldn't, um, you know, expend journalists at the stake of having a paper. But, but, but we, Alan Rusbridger has assured everybody that he will play no role in the appointment of his successor and we can all be assured that Alan Rusbridger is a man of complete integrity and means every word he says and won't play any role in it whatsoever, surely. Well, that's right then. Uh, yeah, I'm sure. Uh, well, you know, or is that nonsense? He might exercise some influence behind the scenes. Uh, uh, but, I mean, of course, it's worth pointing out, as you alluded to, Matt, that it doesn't necessarily follow that whoever wins this hustings uh, and wins the vote of the... the uh, Guardian journalists and observer journalists will 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 win the uh, editorship. In any case, I mean, there's a there's a I think there's around 15, 20 yeah. external candidates. Katz, I believe, I believe is I, in the frame. That is the word on the street that he's applied. Really? Even um, though even though he's doing even though well he left for Newsnight, yeah. so yeah, that's a. Yeah, that's that's a, a risky strategy. No, I think that's right, but um, I think that's true. And and also the name I was surprised not to see on the list was Jonathan Friedland, who I think. Mm. Well, I, I mean, I, I honestly don't know whether. I assume you can apply but opt out of the hustings. So it's quite possible that Johnny Friedland's applied. I think he'd be an amazing candidate and in some ways embodies the real intellectual soul of the Guardian in a way that the other four can't really lay claim to. Okay, next up the Press Gazette claiming a minor victory in their campaign to stop police snooping on journalists. Uh, Home Office Minister Karen Bradley announced interim measures to force police to ask a judge before intercepting journalists' phone and email records. Permanent legislation would be introduced in the new parliament. Uh, Good news, Matt. Well, I I mean, I think it is good news, of course. Uh, I think it's really disturbing that any of this has been going on. I mean, really disturbing. And again, the sort of... The hypocrisy of our, our nation knows no bounds. You know, if you're any sense of a journalist um, doing anything remotely transgressing the law in that sense, it's a huge outrage. But, of course, a story like this downplayed completely. And I think it's great to see the Press Gazette, which was the the absolute prerequisite for any young journalist when I was a kid growing up. It's great to see the Press Gazette as relevant as it used to be in those days, you know, fighting these battles and, and w- with some success. And Dominic Ponsford, I think, is doing a, a good job there. 
Except you can't take it at face value, can you, James? You still, as a journalist, can't be certain that your calls aren't being monitored. Well, no, because apart from anything else, a judge will probably say, yeah, fine. I mean, you have to, you have to wonder how often a judge will reject the uh, request to monitor calls. But, um, I mean, it is, it is unbelievable that, that, that it's happened in the, at all, as Matt says. I mean, and, I, and, and by the way, I would endorse what Matt said about Press Gazette. You know, as a campaigning newspaper, it's, it's really... Uh, giving itself a new lease of life. All right, last story now. Danny Cohen, the uh, director of TV at the BBC, has said he wants to move beyond the corporation's, quote, addiction to overnight ratings. According to Broadcast, two new reports will be published to his division every day. The first is called Live Plus 7, and that will give data on live and viewed on the same day as live, consolidated, narrative repeats, and iPlayer viewing. Still keeping up. The second, called Underserved Overnight, there will be a traffic light system which will indicate how each show has served diverse, less well-off and 16 to 34-year-olds. Uh, James, what do you think Danny's trying to do here? Uh, well, that sounds like a great typical BBC document, doesn't it? Well, I mean, presumably he's simply trying to catch up with the way TV's moved over the last 10 years or more. So it, it probably will give a more accurate picture of how BBC programmes are performing and, and just as importantly, what programmes they should be making that they currently aren't. Yeah, well, I mean, it does kind of make sense, doesn't it? Because obviously a measure of success for the BBC shouldn't just be about ratings. It should be about, is it hitting a certain demographic? So it could be a BAME audience. And if you get that overnight and your focus is that and the programme team are uplifted by that news, even if, frankly, it's tanked amongst everyone else, that's got to be a good thing. Well, I, I, absolutely. And, you know, I think the BBC should think more like that. And, and it's always struck me as odd that the BBC should be in competition for things that are obviously popular, like football rights and stuff like this. You know, it's like it just ramps up the commercial value of those things. And ultimately, that's counter to the taxpayers' interests, you know, the licence fee payers' interests. And I think it would be wonderful if the BBC concentrated more on niche and interesting, less popular, uh, and gave that space. God knows they've got enough channels to do it on now, although, you know, they're clearly throwing BBC Three under the bus, but it's, um, it, I, I think the more niche and uh, interesting the BBC gets, the more rationale there is for its survival and its existence. That's the perennial debate about the BBC, whether it should make popular programmes, you know, um, because there's this great, I mean, I never know if it's an urban myth or not, but the, the idea that the further north you go, the fewer people watch the BBC and the more people watch ITV, I think it probably is true. It probably is true. Um, so then you would argue, well, hang on, the licence fee payers up, up in the northeast or wherever aren't getting value for money because they only make programmes that appeal to, you know, Guardian readers in Islington. Well, so there's it, a very good, interesting example. I mean, it's obviously one granular little bit of, of fact, but when Hugh Edwards on... The BBC News was reporting about Simon Rattle complaining about Britain's lack of concert halls. Uh, it wasn't what Rattle said at all. What Rattle had said was that London's concert halls were poor and the BBC just automatically conflated that to Britain's concert halls. And I think that does that is endemic in the BBC, despite all the Salford move, is that they're still an uber London-centric organisation and um, uh, it it is less reflective of life up north. For that, you've got to tune into Coronation Street. <laughs> uh, and finally, on the subject of uh, telly, before we move on to the much-anticipated media quiz, uh, Danny Cohen also wrote on Wednesday that Hattrick and Avalon's bid for BBC Three did not make sense practically or in the interests of licence fee payers. Uh, Matt, is he right about that? I, I, I can't claim any level of expertise in this, but it does seem that... Um, if a commercial organisation wants to pick up something that the BBC isn't working, 
but did in the past say there's a clear rationale for and trumpeted the ra- that rationale from the rooftops, then it does seem fair enough for someone to say, well, do you know what, we'll have a go then, please. And James, from a PR perspective, you're actually representing Hattrick and Avalon on this, so obviously you can't speak completely uh, impartially, but that's basically their position, isn't it? They're saying, yeah, the BBC exactly. was yeah. saying, we're cutting BBC Three and it's a great shame, if yeah. only there was some way to save it, well, here's an opportunity. I mean, the BBC, just to be very bending over backwards, to be fair, the BBC say, oh, we're putting it online, but I don't think anyone really believes it will survive online with a much smaller budget um, and at the time they did say this is a terrible thing it's the least worst option um, you know we don't want to do this but we've got no choice frankly a negotiating tactics to get more license fee money next time around you know look look what happens when you don't give us the money we ask for um, and Jimmy and John uh, you know I, I would would say and I have said that you know why why squander close to a billion pounds of license fee money which has been spent building up this great brand has launched countless numbers of uh, talented people and no reason why it has to disappear from TV screens and there, are, there, there is a way of saving it which, and, which they've hit on um, and, the, and the, the BBC just it would be nice if the BBC just talks them about it and well, I mean, so the Jimmy and John you refer to are Mulville and Soday, respectively. Indeed. Uh, and we were talking about this in a previous podcast, and the consensus was this was maybe just a provocation. They may not be deadly serious about it. You're here to tell us they are. No, indeed they are. No, absolutely they are. And they've spent a lot of their time and a bit of money on it. So they are absolutely serious, and uh, they're very passionate about TV and very passionate about BBC Three. And they, if they, you know, there's an absolute way to keep the channel going. There's no, there's no question about that. There's, there's stuff to be worked out about rights and whether you can use the BBC name, maybe not, uh, whether it retain its slot on the EPG, on the programme guide. You know, all these things can be hammered out. That's what happens in a negotiation, whether you're buying a house or a TV channel. So they just like a dialogue, I think. And Matt, is BBC Three still BBC Three if you take it away onto a different slot on the EPG, take the name away and just keep some of the same programmes? Isn't it just then a channel showing family guy? Well, I, I mean, I think you have to work on the assumption that the audience would follow it. I think people are quite used to rooting around for TV programs. I don't think the the, ch- the change of channel number is a massive deal. I think the name, obviously, you know, if, the, if, if what we're saying is there's a great brand there and the brand changes, then there's a problem there. But if the audience is true and the audience follows it, then why not? Right. It's the moment we've all been waiting for. It is the media quiz. This week, it is entitled Guess Who's Back?, uh, in front of you is a list of celebrities, and I have in front of me oh a pic. Yeah, it's r- with, there's props involved. This needs to be televised. Our costume people have been involved. Uh, I have in front of me a picture of one celebrity. You ask me questions to whittle it down to the correct celebrity, and then guess who's back. Wow. Uh, I don't know if producer Matt has really thought this through. You literally are holding uh, mm. a, a game of guess who. Uh, the winner will watch the Neighbours cast pretend to be in EastEnders. The loser... Watches EastEnders. Uh, okay, let's go. Okay, okay. Um, have I had a radio career? You have. That means I've got to now put push down all the people that haven't had a radio career. That's okay. how you play Guess that, Who. That's good. Uh, Simon Mayer, you stay. Fiona Bruce. Charlie Brooker's not been on the radio. Okay. Second question, Matt. Am I American? You are not American. Okay. That's Bill O'Reilly gone. There are, there are five, I think six names it. left standing. Have I ever been on Blue Peter? You have. Aha! Would you like to guess yes, who you are? Yes, I believe it is Richard Bacon. You are correct. It Fantastic. is indeed Richard Bacon. But of course, to get the point in our needlessly elaborate quiz, you have to now name the news story. What is the news story oh, regarding yeah, Richard Bacon? Yeah. He is uh, back on TV presenting something to do with 
amateur painters. It's good enough for me. The big painting bake-off allotment challenge or something. <laughs> yes, he's on BBC One. Has uh, it been on yet? Has it been on yet? I don't think so. No, the trailers no, only. Trailers I think. Are right. Him is and Una Stubbs. Is it, it's not a comic relief thing, is it? No, it's a, it's hopelessly a, no, it's a proper show. It's a proper, it's a proper big proper reality show. competition right, right. in the home county style with Richard Bacon. <laughs> Do you think it's going to work? Uh... I'm not sure it is, but I mean, it sounds sounds cruel to say, doesn't it? I mean, I know, well, you know, not, I don't know who's a, on it. I'm Who a big bacon fan on the radio. I think yeah, it's slightly right. odd booking. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's a he's a good presenter. I'm not, it depends on the guest as ever, doesn't it? There's one point to James, uh, Matt. This is your chance to win. Guess who's back? Let's reset the board. Have I <laughs> ever presented the news? No. Right. Okay. Um, have I ever appeared on stage? Yes. Yes. I, oh, right. Okay, good. This is good. So, um, Danny Baker, Rus- Russell Crowe has obviously appeared on stage. Sarah Sands hasn't. Nick Robinson, I mean, he's probably appeared, appeared on stage at a literary festival. <laughs> right. Uh, am I a noted football fan? Yes, I am a noted football right. fan. Right. Can I make a guess? Yes, please. Danny Baker. No. Oh. Chris Moyles. Yes. God, uh, who else was left on the board at that uh, point? Henry Kelly. Yeah. A few others. Yeah, all right. Um, okay. Well, you got it. And and what is the news story associated with Chris Moyles this week? Yeah, he's on British Bake Off. Well done, he's James. He's on British Bake Off. He's clearly not been eating much baking because he's lost he a ton of weight, hasn't he? Hasn't he? He's uh, unrecognisable really? publicity photos. Looks great. Yeah. Congratulations to Mr. Chris Moyles. Uh, James, you are the winner. Well done. My thanks to James Robinson and Matt Kelly. We will be back soon. Remember, you can hear new episodes as soon as they're ready by subscribing at vmediapodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at vmediapodcast or you can like our page on Facebook. Today's show is dedicated to Stephen Allen York, a versatile voiceover artist, he says, who can muster up a variety of accents, characters and impersonations in a jiffy. He's represented by Yakety Yak. Uh, And to Andrew Wilcock, an aviation lawyer, no less, with an unhealthy obsession with the media, uh, and naturally, a huge fan of the media podcast. Thank you, chaps. Uh, I've been Ollie Mann, the producer, Matt Hill. Until next time, bye-bye. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium.